0: This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Well, tonight is quite a night. We are wrapping up a journey that the author of Hebrews has been on for nine chapters now. Through the first big chunk of Hebrews, he is defending that Jesus is superior to every other form of God's messengers to us. Jesus is superior to the angels, to the prophets, to Moses, to the priests. And then this second part that we are concluding tonight, is that the covenant that Jesus brings is superior to the old covenant, the covenant under Moses, in every way. It has superior promises. It is a superior priesthood, a superior tabernacle. And tonight is part two, that Jesus is the superior sacrifice, the one that ratified the covenant, the one that genuinely, permanently takes away sins. This is where we are beginning and ending tonight, and I'm excited to do it with you guys. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. But just knowing God, having salvation and inheriting the kingdom and being freed from sin and death— stood alone and were not complete without the very perfect sacrifice. Hebrews chapter nine is an illustration about a young woman who had left home. She had her own family. She was cooking her Thanksgiving turkey and her husband questioned why she was cutting off the front of the turkey and cutting off the back of the turkey before she put it into the oven. And she said, I don't know, I've always done it. I always saw my mom do it. So she called up her mom and said, mom, why did you always cut off the the front and the back of the turkey before you cooked it? And her mom said, I don't know. That's what I always did. That's what my mom used to do. So they got grandma on the phone. Grandma, why did you always cut off the ends of the turkey? And she said, you guys have been doing that? I had to cut off the ends of the turkey to get it to fit in my stove. It's amazing we've become comfortable in tradition. It's something that we like to do. Like we continue doing it even when it's not necessary anymore. For the Israelites, there was an attraction to the old covenant, to the old sacrifices at the big, beautiful temple with the profound... Rituals that the priests would go through. This is what they'd always done. This is what their parents had always done and their grandparents and on and on back. This is what they'd always done. And this is how they saw themselves as atoned by God. It was wrapped up in something beautiful. And whenever we have a checklist of something that we can do, then we feel satisfied when we've done it. I don't know about you, but when I get to a crosswalk with one of the buttons that gets the light to change, I push the button like 300 times. There's something about it. I can't just push it once. There's something in me that says, if you push it, you need to push it more than once just in case the first one didn't like connect electrically. And just on the off chance that the more you push it, the faster it changes. For them, this was the sacrifices. This is what was comfortable and... You better do it as much and as often as you can, because if this is how we're atoned for for our sin, we want to make sure it takes. We want to make sure it's satisfying. And if we can get through our checklist and have done a really good job, we can be kind of proud of me too. But Jesus came to be a once and for all sacrifice. There was no need for repetition because all of these sacrifices that they repeated over and over again, that they found comfortable repeating over and over again, that they saw good in repeating over and over again, they actually, the repetition showed its flaw, not its goodness. The repetition showed that they never actually took. They never actually worked. They were insufficient to actually save sin which is why they're always having to be repeated. So let's pick up in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. We're going to cover a lot of scripture pretty fast tonight, but it's beautiful. And this is part two of what we started last week, that Jesus is the superior sacrifice. Verse 24, For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands, we talked about this, the superior tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood that's not his own. For then he, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So nothing that is made by hands. Right here in verse 24, it talks about this holy place made by hands. This is the tabernacle, the tent that they set up. It was temporary. It traveled around. And whenever David, David's son built the actual temple, they moved everything in the tabernacle into the temple. But that temple was destroyed. And then they built another temple and that one was destroyed. Anything made by hands is temporary and flawed. But Jesus does his work in a permanent tabernacle. That is heaven, the very presence of God. So Jesus is the only high priest that was worthy, and he entered into the only place that mattered to give the only sacrifice which was effectual to atone for sin. Now, it was to offer himself, but not repeatedly. And this is our main theme for tonight. Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all. That's why it was superior to the old sacrifices. And this was the opposite of what they used to do. How they used to have to repeat them over and over and over again. Verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So just like the sacrifices had to be repeated over and over again, our author here is saying, Jesus doesn't have to die over and over again. He was, he was truly man. He only died once. He only has to die once because his sacrifice is perfect. But he still has a role to play Yet. He died as the perfect sacrifice. He offered himself to God as the perfect high priest in the perfect tabernacle. That is God's very presence in heaven. But Jesus still has a role. Let's look at it again. He says in verse 27, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes The judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting. Jesus has roles left to play. The first role is He's going to come back and He's going to get His people. There's going to be a resurrection, a resurrection of those who died ahead of us, and then those who are still alive, and He takes us. He returns and collects His people, and then He fits us for heaven. He makes us totally holy. So that we can be in the presence of God where he is. But also, Jesus has the role of judge. And everyone will stand before him. Those who believed in him, he will save. But those who were, did not believe in him, who rejected him, he will punish. He will operate both as the one who's returning to get his people and also as the one who will sit as judge. This is a somber consideration. Scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's believers and non believers. Because whenever we are in the very presence of Holy Creator, Sovereign God, everything in us will either cry out that He is our Savior or it will cry out that we have no Savior. And it will be crushing. But nonetheless, we will confess that he is the master, that he is God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse one. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Here's the big flaw of the law. It, It doesn't actually purify anything. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer need have any consciousness of sins. So if the law, if these old sacrifices, if they had did any good, why did they need to be repeated over and over and over again? Verse three, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder. So what's the purpose of all these sacrifices? What's the purpose of the shadows of things, the types, the symbolism of them? Verse three, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Imagine that I am in my clean pajamas and I sit down on the couch next to Jackie having been taking this great shower. I was in there like half an hour, I shaved, I was great. And I sit down to Jackie and I'm like, that shower was amazing. It was so good, I don't think I'll ever shower again that would be like the grossest thing that you could ever say while I'm sitting here smelling good. They'd be like eating an amazing meal and saying it was so good, I'll never need to eat again. If you were sick and you needed to take medicine every hour to stay alive, would you consider yourself cured? That's these sacrifices. Sacrifices. They have to be repeated again and again and again. And the very reality that they have to be repeated shows that they're, that they are insufficient. They are not doing the job of dealing with sins, but they are doing a very good job at one thing. They're revealing a need. The fact that we have to bathe over and over again means we get stinky. And the fact that someone would have to take medicine hour after hour reminds them constantly that they are sick and Sacrifice after sacrifice of taking an innocent animal and watching it, its throat cut and bled out for my sin, for the sin of the person offering it, is this sharp reminder that they still have sin. And the only way that they have any hope is to be as close to God as possible. The only one who can atone for them. So the sacrifices are like a cold splash of water on someone falling asleep at the wheel. Every year, they're a splash, waking them up, saying, no, you still have sin. There's still a need, and one is coming that's gonna finally deal with it. Stay as close to God as possible. He's the only one who can atone. So what the Jews saw as a good thing, this repetition, actually reveals the sacrifice's inadequacy. Verse 3, But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings. So wait, wait, wait. Before we move on, I want to explain what's going on here. Our author has made a very big statement. He's made the statement that sacrifices are of no good against sin. And he is about to defend the idea that Jesus' sacrifice is not only the final one, but it actually does away with all the old sacrifices. That they no longer have to do them anymore because Jesus' is so sufficient and theirs is so inadequate. And so he's going to use scripture, Old Testament scripture, to defend this point that the new removes the need for the old. So he turns to the Psalms. So let's read verse five. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and here it is, Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. See so the author is given his evidence, and he turns to Psalm forty. And if you want to, put your thumb in Hebrews ten and jump back to Psalm forty, because I want to compare what Psalm forty says with what our author in Hebrews says, so you can see something that's pretty significant. So he has this contrast between the sacrifices and the offerings. It's the old covenant; God doesn't actually desire these, and then he compares it, contrasts it with the new covenant. To do your will. This is what God actually desires. So Psalm 40, verse 6. This is a psalm written by David. And by Jesus' time, it was recognized as a psalm that was prophetic. That was written about the messianic king that's going to come someday. David's heir. As if that heir, that messianic king is speaking these words. So in that context, let's take a look at this. Psalm 40, verse six. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your laws within my heart. Now, if you're paying close attention, you'll notice that our author in Hebrews changed one phrase. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tweaked it because he's going to answer how. In Psalm 40, verse 6, it says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. In Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 5, it says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So what does Psalm 40, verse 6 mean? You have given me an open ear. It literally means you have dug out my ears. So imagine someone's ear full of clay and they can't hear anything and you're digging the clay out of their ears so they're able to hear again. In Psalm 40, verse 6, it's contrasting sacrifices and offerings. They're not pleasing you, but I desire to do your will. But how can I do your will if I can't hear your instruction or your command. If someone knocks on the door and you don't hear the knock, you can't respond to the knocking. If a parent or an authority figure says, I need you to do this, but you don't hear them, you can't be obedient. And so in Psalm 40, verse 6, he's saying, you have opened my ears so that I can be obedient to you. How will this Messiah, how will the Son Be obedient to God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 answers that question. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of this only son of the father. How does the Messiah do God's will? He took on a body, flesh and blood. God gave Jesus human ears to listen, and he gave Jesus human hands to obey. John six thirty eight. Jesus is speaking, and he says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus had a human heart, a human mind, and a human body, and he perfectly obeyed God's will in every way. Romans 5, verse 19, is contrasting Adam having sinned. And because of Adam's sin, death came in to humanity. Adam was our representative. And so God sent his son as another representative and through his son's obedience, his perfect obedience, being truly God and truly man, sin was dealt with. Romans five nineteen for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus did what we couldn't do. A body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Verse seven, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, As it is written of me in the scroll. We have a thousand years of prophecies of God. Actually more, I think it's like 1500 years of God's prophecies, all the way back to the beginning of time, if you want to count Genesis 3.15. Jesus was written about, Jesus became flesh. And Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly. Verse 10. Oh, verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Verse 9. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, that's the old covenant, that's the sin offerings, the sacrifices, the animals, in order to establish the second, based on Obedience based on God's will. Verse 10, And by that will, we have been sanctified and through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now that word body here is referring back to verse 5, which you can see above. Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So what does Jesus give as a sacrifice? He gives what? He gives his own body. He gives all he has. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His perfection takes the place of our imperfection. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies we made a footstool for his feet. You see, in the tabernacle, the earthly one, the, the symbolic one, the shadow In the temple, there were no chairs. The priests worked daily. As long as they were on duty, they were never sitting down because there was always sin. Therefore, there always needed to be sacrifices to deal with sin. They were always in motion. They never sat down. But Jesus, because his sacrifice is once and for all, he goes before the Father as the perfect Priest, perfect high priest, bringing himself as the perfect sacrifice. And then his work is finished and he sits down. He was our once and for all sacrifice. And he continues at our, as our high priest and our intercessor. Our intercessor, how close to God is he? Sitting at his right hand. He couldn't be any closer. So how does this apply to us? If Jesus did the work, we don't have to. A young man came to a pastor after service. The pastor had just had this amazing service. People were crying, the Holy Spirit landed on people. He had this altar call and many people came up to be saved. And the young man came to an after service after people had left. The emotion had died down. And he said, Pastor, I didn't come during the altar call. What do I need to do to be saved? And the pastor said, nothing. What do you mean? Well, I mean, is it it because it's too late? I, I can't. Nothing. There's nothing you can do. Because Jesus has done it all. You just respond in faith and believe that his work was enough, that his obedience was sufficient, that he is worthy before God as your representative. There's nothing left for you to do. If, if you're in this room and you're relying on being good enough, there's like this wacko line in Home Alone 2. Remember where a kid goes to New York? Anyone? It's okay. And like this homeless lady tells him, did you know a good deed erases a bad deed? Like, no. If you're relying on trying to do enough good stuff to please God into heaven, you are leaning toward old covenant ideals. That you've got to have enough sacrifices and enough good things, and you've got to please God enough. And that gives you one of three ways of living, and they're all miserable. The first is that you live in stress, frantically working your whole life, and never sure if it's enough because you're trying to please God with your works. You're trying to buy your salvation by being enough. The second way you can live is you can live proud because you feel like you've succeeded. You've figured out what God's bar is, the one you created, and then you've lived up to it, and great job me, so I can walk in pride. Or third, you live discouraged because you've set the bar that you think it is. You've tried to meet it, and after time and time and time again of failing, you're discouraged and give up. So you live anxious, you live proud, or you live defeated. Climbing the ladder of good works to try to reach God is like climbing your mom's step ladder to meet the moon. All the good works and the length of your body is all you've got to reach an infinitely distant goal. Because God's bar is not as low as you think it is. His bar is perfect holiness. And none of us and no one who ever lived could reach that bar except God himself who put on a body so that he could die as the perfect sacrifice and represent us as the perfect high priest in the perfect tabernacle of God's presence so that we would be counted righteous. And yet, being counted as worthy before God, we still have an offering to give. Hebrews 10, let's pick up in verse 14. For by a single offering, he has prepared for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected, sorry, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We're coming back to that verse. That's that's so interesting. Verse 15, he's going to defend this idea. Let's come back to it now. Verse 14, we have a paradox here. The paradox is by a single offering, he has perfected past tense, done, finished, complete. For all time, those who are being active happening right now, moving forward, sanctified. It's a both and. When you commit your life to Christ, his sacrifice is sufficient that you are bought and paid for. You are a son and daughter of God for eternity. And you can rest in that. And between now and eternity, between now when you stand before God, he is also saving you through sanctifying you. He is chiseling away everything that it doesn't look like him. Everything that is not his perfect holiness, he is working on, stretching, molding, chiseling to make you more like himself. We call that sanctification. He is holifying us. He is setting us apart more and more and more every day. So we are both perfected and we're being sanctified, being perfected. God is constantly doing surgery on us. Paul calls this putting to death the flesh. And God does this by regularly bringing to mind those things that we need to put on the altar as our offering. And then our author here brings scriptural support to this weird paradox. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Your hearts and your minds, that's where you function from. That's where you're actively living from. So God's law is transforming at work, living through us. Verse 17, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So it is done and being done at the same time. God has Finished his work through the perfect sacrifice, and he is working in us towards being holy. Verse 18: for where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offerings for sin. But we still have an offering to bring, and it is beautiful. Let's keep going to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, and this is all wrapping up, this is closing his argument that he's been doing since chapter one, tying all the loose ends together to make his one big final point. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, Jesus is our forerunner into the presence of God, by the new, talk about the new covenant, And the living way that he opened for us through the curtain, talking about the curtain of the Holy of Holies, that is through his flesh. So when Jesus was torn, it was just like the curtain of the temple being torn. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The culmination of this whole thing, all of this argument for nine and a half chapters, is so that God's people can draw near into God's presence. How does it happen? Through all that we've talked about our perfect high priest, our perfect sacrifice, and a perfect tabernacle under a new covenant. It all culminates to this single purpose God's rescue mission is finished at the cross. When Jesus says it's finished, he means God's work from Genesis 3.15 is done now. We can draw near. And we don't come empty-handed either. We have been purchased, freed, cleansed. And all we have to give when we go into the presence of God is all that we have, is all that we are. All that we have to give to the one who paid it all is it, is us. That's it. That is what's left for us to give. You see, even in the Old Testament with the sacrifices, when a genuine worshiper came to give a sacrifice, God saw more than just an animal and a ritual. He saw the heart. And if they were coming out of obligation, if they were coming out of duty, he saw the heart. 10,000 animal sacrifices wouldn't please him when he saw a heart working out of duty, working out of obligation. Think for a second. If I bought my wife flowers for Valentine's Day and I bring the flowers to her and they're just beautiful and she's glowing, she's all excited and she just wraps them up, oh, thank you so much. This is great. What if my response was, well, It was Valentine's Day, so it's the right thing to do. Right? Or what if my response was, oh, good, I'm glad I came in. I have a a repeating order for for Valentine's Day with the flower shop. Right? But what if my response was, you're absolutely welcome. When I tell you I love you, I don't say it out of habit. I say it because I adore you. The heart's different. My wife can sense the heart's different. When, when people would bring their sacrifices, even in the old covenant, it was never about the ritual, it was about their heart. God took great delight in the sacrifices of sincere worshipers. He called their, their sacrifices, yeah, the animal sacrifices, the one that, that are just symbols and shadows. He called them a sweet and fragrant incense rising up to him. And it wasn't the animal, it was their hearts that were the incense that were beautiful, to God. His delight wasn't in the animal, it was delight was in the obedience. When we come before God, the offering that we have, the only offering that we have in God's presence is the obedience of giving ourselves. And our obedience doesn't earn our salvation. Our obedience is a response out of joy for our salvation. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Think of all that we've talked about over these past months, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Wait, what did Jesus do? He was our forerunner. He presented his body as a living sacrifice for God. How was Jesus obedient? God gave him a body to be obedient with. And what is Paul saying to us here? He's saying, follow your leader, follow your king. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How do we go in to God's presence? We go in giving the only offering we have, our obedience, our worship from a heart full of love and of joy. Worship is making all of yourself, your gift to God. Our lives are an altar and every thought, every word, every action is laid on this altar. Every sin, every habit, every obsession, every idol we lay on this altar, everything that we are, we lay out before God. And this is our holy and acceptable worship. My question for you tonight is: Is your obedience to God a checklist to try to keep God from being mad at you? Is your rejecting sin a killjoy obligation that you've got to do because your heavenly Father is going to be checking your report card? Is praying or reading your Bible or giving offerings or showing up on Sunday? Is that just your way of paying dues to keep your heaven membership? Or does your choice to reject sin, to chase righteousness, to pursue a relationship with the Lord, does it come out of a heart of doing, of delighting in doing God's will? Do you love to please Him? I promise you, everything that you lay on that altar is worth giving up. Jesus says, if you would come after me, pick up your cross daily, your instrument of death, pick it up daily the thing that kills our flesh, that sanctifies us, that that chisels away all the things that are not of God, pick that up daily and follow me, follow my example of being a living sacrifice. Because whoever would try to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will keep it. Whatever we lay on the altar is a wonderful trade for all that God offers. There was a youth group and they went out to play the game, Bigger and Better. If you're about to graduate, you're going to get a book with this story in it. And Bigger and Better means that you knock on someone's house and you show up with a paper clip or a nickel or something like that. And you say to the people that answer the door, first of all, I'm, I'm not, you know, Jehovah's Witness, or selling new insurance, but I would like to trade what I have in my hands for something bigger and better. And so they would see your paperclip, and they might trade you a notepad, or they might trade you a can of Sprite, or whatever it is, and they trade you something bigger and better than what you have. So you take that object, and you go to the next house. You knock on that door. I will trade you for something bigger and better. And you just watch this thing grow. And by the end of the night, the youth group is going home with like TVs and mattresses and all kinds of crazy stuff. And one man, one young man, left the game with a Dodge pickup truck, which (laughs) which he took down to the street and donated to the nearby church. But you see in this game, there's a risk every time you go to the door. Every time you stand there and you're holding something in your hands, something you might be like, this is cool. This is something that I've kind of always wanted. It was a risk that you say, I have to surrender what's in my hands for what they're going to give me. We come to God so many times. We, we, we come up to the, to the altar, the altar that we're supposed to lay ourselves on as living sacrifices, and we go like this. Here, God, you can have all of this, but this is mine. I want you to have all of me, but when the doors are closed, this is mine. You can have everything, but I want control in this area. You're king over everywhere else, but this one. I want control in. You can have my money, but you can't have my thoughts. You can have my friendships, but you can't have my boyfriend or girlfriend. What is it that you're so afraid to surrender? I promise you, if you will let go of whatever that is that you've been afraid to sacrifice, God is either going to take it from you for your good because he has something bigger or better or he'll give it back to you because that was good and from him to begin with. And I'll tell you something a little bit nerve-wracking. Whatever you're holding on to that you don't want to put on the altar is fair game for the devil to use against you. You can't hold it tight enough that he can't get in And use that for your destruction. But whatever you lay on the altar is untouchable by the enemy. And it is at the mercies and the work of God's glory and your good. What is it that you're so afraid to let go of? Are you willing to take the boyfriend or girlfriend relationship and put on the altar and say, God, is this of you? If not, you can take it. Are you willing to take your relationship with your parents? I've always wanted to like not do whatever they're asking you to do and put that on the altar and say, God, either take it or sanctify me, give it back to me, however you want this. What is it you're so afraid to put on the altar? And I'm telling you, whatever you will not let go, if it's that boyfriend or girlfriend, that's where the devil's going to work. If it's your phone, that's where the devil's going to work. If it's your mouth, that's where the devil's going to work. Whatever you will not lay on the altar for the Lord, you're surrendering that for your enemy. But when you lay on the altar, God has so much more. For whoever loses their life for my sake, whoever gives it away, whoever makes this a living sacrifice, they will get everything. So, our author here shows that the old sacrifices are insufficient. He shows that Jesus' sacrifice is not only sufficient, but it does away with the old ones. And he also shows that we still have something to offer, not out of trying to earn salvation, but out of joy for our salvation. So, I've got two challenges for you. One, I challenge you to be brave and ask the Lord, How can I be obedient today? And two, When you read your Bible, ask, how can I practically apply what I'm reading today so that we can start living lives of delighting in obedience to God? Thank you, our Heavenly Father, for giving everything to save us. Oh, Lord, that we would have the courage to give everything to you. Work in us. Discipline us. Lord. I don't know if on this side of heaven, any of us will ever fully be sanctified or laid on that altar. But thank you for the joy that we don't have to do that to be saved, that we can do that out of a heart of joy. And your Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of holiness, will sanctify us to convict us and give us the the power to surrender more and more every day love you, Lord. Bless our e-groups. Bless the leaders. Help them have good conversation and good discussion. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.